experimented with trying a new cycle for our Torah, for our um, New Testament readings, and it's that cycle is called Chaye Yeshua, the life of Yeshua, and we read through all four Gospels on a three-year basis, right? So this season, this year uh, of our Torah reading cycle, that we are reading through the Besora, the the good news of Matthew, and so our reading today was from the beginning of chapter two, which begins and after Yeshua was born in Bethlehem, in the land of Yehuda. During the time when Herod was king, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem, and they asked, Where is the newborn king of the Jews? For we saw his star in the east and have come to worship him. Now, obviously, most people who are familiar with this passage will kind of associate it with what we call the Christmas story, right? Um, however, I want to look at it today as setting up the context for Matthew's account of Yeshua that there's actually more going on here than what we typically imagine. So first of all, where does this happen? In the very first words, it says that the context of this is in a place called Beit Lechem, right? Which means what? What is Beit? House. And what is Lechem? Bread, Beit Lechem. And this is an ancient town associated with the Davidic line that Yeshai's father came from Bethlehem, and all the descendants of Jacob are associated with this place because that's where David and his father and his father's family were from. And it's only about five and a half miles from Jerusalem. So when you're standing up on any of the, the hills in Jerusalem, you can look over, you can actually stand on the Temple Mount and look over the hill and see Bethlehem, just not even like the far distance. Like I said, it's only five and a half miles away. So it's a good, you know, probably a half a day's journey. Like if you wanted to walk it, you could do it in just a, a, a few hours. So maybe even less. It doesn't take that far to, rock, to walk five and a half miles. So it's really close. And this is part of Matthew setting up that Yeshua is a descendant of the line of David and therefore a candidate for being Messiah. Remember when we talked a couple weeks ago, we introduced not only the idea of the repetition of the son of David, son of David, son of David, son of David, that appears over and over and over again through the book of Matthew, but even in his genealogies, he purposely set it up conveniently to have 14, 14, 14 generations, right? And why was that? Because that is, right, the numerology of David, right? If you take, remember that the letters, right, like, are also numbers. So what is Dalit? Aleph, Beit, Gimel, Dalit is four. Aleph, Beit, Gimel, Dalit, Hey, Vav is six, right? So four plus six plus four equals 14. That is the same as the 14 generations, right? Four, so the whole idea is, is, as we're gonna see over and over and over again as we go through Matthew, is there are two major themes that appear. One is Matthew's emphasis to his readers that Yeshua is the fulfillment of the Davidic promise, that he is the Messiah, the son of David. And the other thing that we see over and over again is that he is like Moses. So all the story of Yeshua parallels Moses' experience, as well as demonstrating that Yeshua is the greater Moses. He's the one that Deuteronomy said, in which Moses himself tells the Jewish people, that 
a prophet who is greater than I am will come along, and when he does, you need to listen to him, right? And so Matthew wants to establish for his primarily Jewish audience that Yeshua is these things. And then we are introduced to King Herod, when it says, when Herod was king. Herod is Jewish by religion, but what is his people group? An Edomite, right? He's an Edomian. The Edomites, are, or the Edomians, were descendants of the Edomites, Edom, that's where Edom, Edomian comes from. The, these are the descendants of Esau, right? Edom, right, is what Esau was also called, Esau, because Edom is red, right? And so the descendants of the Edomites, so in the patriarchal period, they were called Edomites, but then later, uh, by the time of the Second Temple period, which is now a couple thousand years later, the, some of their descendants are now known as the Edomians. Now, according to the books of Maccabees, this was a time that was kind of very terrible for Jews. Uh, it was a time that we decided we had this great idea that we should go around forcing people to convert to Judaism by the sword. Convert to Judaism, worship the one God, or we'll kill you, right? Uh, a terrible idea, because what happens when that, what is the result? People who don't really fear God. Right? They, they fear their life more than they fear God, and so they choose to convert to Judaism. And what do you get when you force people to convert to Judaism? You get people like King Herod, right? who was a terrible king and a horrible individual, and he made the lives of the Jewish people extremely terrible. And yet, he's a Jewish king because by religion, he's technically Jewish, right? He can, they converted to Judaism, and so they're Jews, but they're descendants of people that were forced to convert to Judaism by the sword. Now, there's more that we could talk about Herod. Um, some of the things he did, he was an extremely... One of the good things, if you want to call it good, because, I mean, it's all slaves who built all these things, but uh, he, uh, he was able to accomplish major feats of, like, buildings. And he built massive uh, projects all over Israel. Some of the things that we know is Caesarea Maritima, right, Caesarea, um, he also constructed even the Temple Mount itself, that he had a vision to like expand the temple to make it three times the size that it was. And in fact, it wasn't even done when it was destroyed. And the temple was so big that the, the mountain that it was on wasn't actually big enough to hold it, and so they built a platform. What you see today is the Western Wall. If you think of this as the platform of the Temple Mount, and then what is today the Dome of the Rock, but in biblical times, it was the temple that stood in the middle of the platform. And what is today known as the Western Wall is kind of like the retaining wall of this. It's not an actual wall of the, the temple. It's a, it's a retaining wall of the platform that the temple sat on. So King Herod is introduced in this passage. And then it says, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem. They came to Jerusalem. So who are the Magi? These are not the, you know, we three kings <laughs> of Orient are. These are, it's from the Greek magos, which was derived from the old Persian word magus. The Magi were mostly, they were most likely Zoroastrian astronomers. As part, of their, as part of their religion, these priests paid particular attention to the stars and gained an international reputation for astrology, which was at that time highly regarded as a science. 
it's likely, and there was also likely more than just three of them, right? That there was probably a group of these uh, sages who came from ancient Iran. And the reason why most people associate only three of them is because of the gifts, right? That there was gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And so if there's three gifts, there must have only been three dudes who traveled all of this way to see Yeshua. And then it goes on in verse 3. When King Herod heard of this, he became very agitated, and so did everyone else in Jerusalem. He called together all of the head Kohanim and the Torah teachers of the people and asked them, where will the Messiah be born? In Bethlehem of Yehuda, they replied, because the prophet wrote, and you, Bethlehem, in the land of Yehuda, are by no means the least among the rulers of Judea, for from you will come a ruler who will shepherd the people of Israel. It's a quote from Micah 5.1. So first of all, it talks about that King Herod was very agitated when he heard them say that they, had, that they were looking for a king of the Jews who was supposedly born somewhere outside of the palace, right? And Herod, if you know anything about Herod, was so paranoid about anyone taking his throne, he killed his own children and even one of his wives. So he was extremely paranoid. Anybody that he felt could be a threat, he killed them. And he, so he says that he was so agitated by this reference from these distant sages that he consulted some of the head Kohanim and the scribes. Now, the Kohanim were mostly Sadducees. Sadducees in Hebrew are known as the Tzedukim. And the word from tzedek, right, tzedek, is righteous. So the tzedukim were these righteous, in, in, the term refers to righteous individuals. But they were, the, the reason why they're called the tzedukim is they got their name from the Kohen Gadol, the high priest who was appointed by King Solomon, whose name was Tzadok. And so those descendants of Tzadok were then called the tzedukim. And the tzedukim were not only those from the priestly class, but they were primarily priests and those who supported the priesthood. And they were the aristocrats at the time, right? They weren't necessarily the most religious, they weren't necessarily the most pious, and they were the most likely to work with the Roman officials. And then it tells us that he, so he gathered, King Herod gathered the Tzedukim, the, the, the priests, and it says the Torah teachers, the scribes. This term for scribes is the Greek word grammateus. This is where we get grammar from, right? <laughs> and this is a direct translation of the Hebrew word sofer, which literally means a scribe. And this is why most English translations of the Bible say a scribe. However, when we're talking about the scribes of the New Testament period, that they weren't simply those who wrote scrolls or did administrative duties. They, their responsibility as those who could read, as those who were literate, were to instruct the people who were primarily illiterate in what the Torah says, right? And so since most of the people could not read themselves, that they relied on people to tell them what the Torah said, and that was their job. Now, according to Joe Shulam, who many of you know because he's spoken here before, and it's Dana's uh, father, according to Joe Shulam, this... Uh, Sorry, I lost my place. Many modern scholars believe that the scribes were sages of the common people. 
They were likely Torah teachers without smicha, without any kind of formal ordination, and therefore could teach Torah but could not render new legal rulings or introduce interpretations. According to Joshulam, this is why the people were in shock that Yeshua taught like a rabbi and not like a scribe. But I would say that, it's not, that Yeshua even goes beyond teaching like a rabbi. In fact, they say, why do you teach as one who has authority? In fact, in Matthew 7, it says, when Yeshua had finished saying these things, the crowds were amazed at the way that he taught. For he was not instructing them like the Torah teachers, but as one who had authority himself. What did it mean by that? When the scribes taught, they didn't have a particular kind of authority. This is where many get the idea that they didn't have any kind of a formal ordination. They just had the learning and the instruction. And that they were connected in some way with the Pharisees, whether they were distinct from or just identified with, they were somehow connected with the Pharisees, but also distinct. Now, Yeshua does something that is fascinating. And this is why he speaks with a certain level of authority that makes him even different than later rabbis. When you want to speak authoritatively in Judaism, how do you cite something? If you want to speak authoritatively, if you want to sound like, I know what I'm talking about. <laughs> Rarely do they even say it is written, although it is written, but most likely it's Rabbi so-and-so says, or in the name of Rabbi so-and-so, therefore this is what it is, right? Because somebody who has greater authority than you said it, and so it gives you the authority to render that interpretation. Yeshua never quotes another rabbi. He says things that are very similar to other teachings within Judaism at the time, but Yeshua's authority comes from himself. Rather than saying, Rabbi so-and-so says, therefore, whatever, he just simply says, I say <laughs> this is what it is. And in fact, he'll even, in clarifying religious, you know, halachic decisions, he'll say, you have heard it said, which is actually a common halachic principle at the time. And we even know this from certain texts. For example, there's a, a scroll from the Dead Sea Scrolls called 4QMMT. So just, 4 just means which cave it was from. Q means Qumran, the collection of Qumran. And MMT is just an abbreviation for the title of this, Miksatma Asei Torah, which means works of the Torah. And in this scroll, 4QMMT, we have the, the people of Qumran who use the same formula. That it is said, yada, 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 but we say it's yada, yada, yada. So, there, so Yeshua is using the same kind of formula for rendering halachic decisions, but rather than saying we say, he says, but I say. The authority comes from himself, not just simply collectively. It also then says that Herod, back here in our Matthew text, is he asks the sages that he gathers, the priests and the Torah teachers, where will the Messiah be born? And they probably discussed it among themselves first before responding, but then we only have the recording of what they said. They said, they basically say that he will be born in Bethlehem, and then they quote Micah 5.1. Now, when the New Testament or rabbinic literature cites a scriptural passage, it refers to the whole context, not simply the quoted words, right? Remember, they didn't have verse numbers back then. That's from the Middle Ages. 
the chapter and verse breaks. So when they wanted to refer to something, they couldn't say, as Matthew 5.2 says, or Jeremiah 6.1 says. Instead, what they would do is they would recite a passage of the passage that they wanted to refer to. And so they meant the entire thing because they didn't think like we do in chapters. They thought in stories. So when, like, for example, if I wanted to, to refer to something, I could simply say, um, we the people of the United States of America, then you would all know what I'm referring to, right? I, they, right. So, and this is the way that they would do that, except they would also do this with scriptural text. They would recite a passage, just a piece of that text, to recall to the people the, the passage that they're referring to, but it's never just one verse. And so actually, if you take the time to read what Micah is talking about, it's definitely interpreted as some kind of a future king, right? That is descended from, uh, from Bethlehem. And it says, right, that if we were to go back and read what that passage said, it says, you are by no means least among the rulers of Judea, of Judah, Yehuda is what it says, for from you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. That not only does Matthew kind of midrashically understand this to relate to Yeshua because it's a messianic passage, but he's in good company because even the sages of Israel after Yeshua interpreted this passage to be messianic. And then we read on. Herod summoned the Magi to meet with him privately and asked them exactly when the star had appeared. And then he sent them to Bethlehem with these instructions. Search carefully for the child, and when you find him, let me know so that I too may go and worship him. It's a little sly, right? Tell me exactly what you find and where you find it because, you know, like I might want to show up too. He does want to show up, but not with good intentions. After they had listened to the king, they went away, and the star which they had seen in the east went in front of them until it came and stopped over the place where the child was. And when they saw the star, they were overjoyed. Upon entering the house, they saw the child with his mother Miriam, and they prostrated themselves and worshipped him. Then they opened their bags and presented him gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. But they had been warned in a dream not to return to Herod, so they took another route back to their own country. When I was a kid, I always wondered, what's with the gold, frankincense, and myrrh? Believe it or not, these were valuable items. These valuable items were standard gifts to honor a king or a deity in the ancient world. We have many, many, many texts that said when you wanted to honor a deity, not just within uh, Jewish culture, but within other Canaanite and other cultures, you brought gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And there's various reasons for why they did it, but they were just following standard custom. These are gifts, if you're going to, if you're going to interact with a deity or a king, these were the common gifts that you would bring. Within this passage from our Chaye Yeshua reading cycle, we encounter two very stark responses to the birth of Herod. We're first introduced to, well, first to the Magi, right? Or maybe it's Herod we, we were introduced to first. Either way, we have two responses to the birth of Yeshua. One is the Magi, who traveled a great distance all the way from Persia, which is modern-day Iran, and brought precious gifts. 
This wasn't a trip that took a, a few hours. This is a trip that probably would have taken them weeks in order to find Yeshua. And when they find him, they go to great lengths, even going to Jerusalem first to inquire about where this child was born. And they even brought precious gifts for this small child that they didn't know much about other than what was kind of prophesied within their own understanding. So in one sense, you have these people who were so eager to meet this child that they went to whatever lengths that it took in order to have an encounter with this unique child that was born. So that's one response to the birth of Yeshua. The other response is that of Herod and those with him. What do we read about Herod? That he was filled with jealousy, right? He was agitated by what he had heard. And we know later that he even tried to kill all of the Jewish boys within the vicinity of Bethlehem. What is our response to Yeshua and his call upon our lives? Are we avoidant? Are we rebellious? Are we jealous? Are we enraged? Or humble and eager to pursue him at a great cost? I want to challenge all of us to have the passion of the Magi. Not necessarily the religion of the Magi, but the passion of the Magi. To be willing to pursue our Messiah and find this person with everything that we have that even the cost and the task that it takes in order to find this person, to find our Messiah that we would do, and that this would be the thing that motivates us. That just as Paul writes in Romans 10.1, my greatest heart's desire is that all Israel would be saved, right? And not just Israel, but then that would be extended to the world, that all the world would be saved. That that would be the passion, the passion that motivated the Magi to some degree, would still motivate us to do everything that we can to be pursuers of peace, to be pursuers of the vehicle in which salvation will come to the entire world. God, in the name of Yeshua, that we pray that when we're confronted with the truth of the message of the gospel, that we wouldn't be like Herod, but that we would be in many ways like the Magi. It's easy for those of us, especially for those of us who have been followers of Yeshua for a long time, to just kind of let our faith grow cold a little bit as we balance so many things of life around us. But throughout the scripture, there are so many things that remind us that we need to be very clear about what our response needs to be. Help us to be pursuers of you, purpose of your, pursuers of your purpose in the earth. Those who are willing to set aside the cost in order to have a divine encounter. I thank you for what you are doing in this place, for what you're doing in the hearts of many of us as individuals, and what you're doing even in the world. Because it's going to take your followers who are willing to rise up 
to be willing to put everything aside in order to pursue preparing the world for the return of Messiah. So thank you, God, for this message that even hidden within this story is a challenge of two responses to the message of Yeshua. May we indeed be pursuers of you, pursuers of a divine encounter. We pray all of this in the name of Yeshua. Amen. So I want to invite you to rise.